name's Bond. James Bond. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Bond vs. Godzilla, the podcast that compares and contrasts two of the longest-running film series in cinema history. My name is Cruz Moore, and I will be your resident Godzilla expert on this show. Joining me on this cinematic journey for however long it lasts are three of my very good friends who each have their own history and experience with both film franchises. Bond expert Jacob Roberts. Hey guys, glad to be back. Audio engineer Willie Crook. Yay! And digital artist Chaz Lemons. On today's episode, we'll be tackling the second installments in the iconic film franchises from Russia with Love from 1963 and Godzilla Raids Again from 1955. So without further ado, Jake, please educate us on the first sequel in the Bond series. The year is 1963, and the world is still reeling from what would be hailed as the tensest moments of the Cold War. The same month that James Bond first stepped onto the silver screen and prevented Dr. No from toppling an American rocket, the real world very nearly fell into nuclear disaster thanks to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, and the world avoided apocalypse. But the crisis proved more than ever that the delicate balance of the Cold War was a very real threat. A full year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, on October 10, 1963, the second James Bond film adventure from Russia with Love was released. No doubt the film based on Ian Fleming's fifth James Bond novel, originally released in 1957, was chosen to be adapted because of recent events and because President Kennedy once hailed it as one of his favorite books. Directed by Terence Young, with screenplay by Richard Maybaum, From Russia with Love, more than any other Bond film, has Cold War politics at the heart of its narrative. One could argue that From Russia with Love is the only Bond film that is truly a spy movie. Of course, producers Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman knew better than to paint the Soviet Union as the primary antagonistic force, so they chose to continue the Spectre story established in Dr. No and turn the plot into one in which the evil criminal organization plays both sides against each other. The movie was filmed on location at Istanbul, Turkey, which at the time was under the control of the Soviet Union and one of its most important strategic locations due to it being the gateway between Europe and Asia. Bond is tasked with teaming up with the defecting Russian cipher clerk and stealing a top-of-the-line decoding machine from the Russian consulate, the first of many MacGuffins that Bond would risk his life to recover. Would you say that as soon as uh, JFK announced that that was his favorite book, that I was like, okay, guys, go, 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 make yeah, it, make the, it, make it? I believe uh, JFK, the the article in which he listed, it was amongst his like his ten favorite books of all time, and I believe it was 1961 that uh, JFK uh, gave that uh, article. The decision to have From Russia with Love be the very next film was decided during Dr. No's production, and production on From Russia with Love essentially started almost immediately after Dr. No uh, was was in the can. So I think one interesting evolution from the first film to this one is I'm really interested to see how the theme songs and the titles evolve and eventually get to where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one in particular was almost like this betting game in the studio where it's like, so what part of the female anatomy do you want your name on? (laughs) (laughs) 
everything from uh, the idea of the classic gun barrel sequence and all of the classic uh, opening title sequences all the way up to the Brazen era is all the brainchild of uh, Maurice Bender, uh, famous for his title sequences, uh, mostly in Bond, but in uh, other movies as well. He is the absolute mastermind behind all of that uh, story that I've heard uh, behind the scenes. Uh, people say in interviews and stuff that you know Maurice was handled that stuff alone so much that the actual editors wouldn't have the film strip of the opening title sequences to actually put into the uh, can and edit it in until the day of the premiere. So how many more films did he stick around with? All the way until the Brosnan era, which is, you know, the 90s. So you'll, you'll see him all the way from now until, uh, until the end of the Dalton era and License to Kill in 89. So we're essentially going to see another artist style just evolve and change with every installment. Yeah. That's really It's really, really cool. interesting to see, you know, where, how they handle the opening title sequences. You know, they're practically movies in and of themselves. And when you, were, when you premiered it to us, you said that this had twice the budget of the first one? It had a $2 million budget. You know, I know we, uh, we made those fun jokes about Dr. No having the $1 million budget. This had a $2 million budget. Uh, it went over budget. For March With Love had a pretty um, rigorous uh, production. A lot of things did not go smoothly. I even, you know, even uh, preparing for the podcast, I even did some research on all the complications that From Russia With Love had in its production, and they were actually quite extensive. Um, the entire action scene on in the uh in the gulf of venice with the boats uh with a big old explosion of the oil barrels mm-hmm. I mean, they you know they set up that uh the, those pyrotechnics to where they only had one shot of it and due to miscommunication mm-hmm. the special effects guys uh set them off during a uh, rehearsal of it and didn't know it was a rehearsal but they, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. during the practice run and so they had to set it up and come back the next day and uh, there was an instance where uh, Terrence Young, uh, the, the director, was overseeing everything in a helicopter. And the helicopter went essentially out of control and oh, right into the drink with the director inside of it. And he's sinking inside the helicopter. They, they, you know, they, they got him out. He, was, he, he had some injuries, but... They were on a tight schedule, so he refused to go to the hospital until after the shooting was done. So he, he just went ahead with the show, like, okay, let's roll the next one. Uh, Can I walk? Yes, then keep rolling. There was there was several, uh, even in post-production, a whole lot of uh, uh, the entire scene in uh, the Spectre boathouse where you first uh, hear and uh, blow fell and he's giving orders to Kronstein and Rosa Klebb. That all had to be uh, reshot due to changes in post-editing, where they uh, ended up rearranging a whole bunch of sequences for uh, narrative purposes. And so that caused some script issues, and they had to uh, do some clever trickery to essentially refilm that entire scene, even though filming was done. And another thing that really complicated filming was... uh, the Mexican actor Pedro Amandares, who played the role of Carambe. During the production, during the filming, he became deathly ill. And he, he was insistent that he, he had to finish this movie. He had to finish it. 
And so they changed up production to make sure, you know, that they could film his stuff as quickly as possible, changing uh, uh, changing production line just to make sure all of his scenes are shot. And they say that, you know, in some scenes when he's when he while he's performing, there are literally crewmen behind him propping him up to keep him standing while he's performing. And yeah, unfortunately, uh, he did not make it to see the release of the film. He died before the film released uh, and uh, put him in a hospital bed in Mexico and until he couldn't handle the pain anymore and he shot himself with a pistol that he smuggled into the hospital. Whoa. Yep. Interesting enough, uh, Pedro Almendarez's son, uh, his real-life son, makes an appearance in a later Bond film. So, I mean... Obviously, if we can get that far, and I can point him out to you. I mean, that's crazy to think that this guy was so deathly ill because everything about his character has a lot of enthusiasm and charisma. Oh, yeah, I mean, so. yeah. The, the character of Karen Bay is like one of the best things about From Russia with Love. He just has a really fun character that you just you know just gobble up whenever he's on screen. Brilliant actor. Like even though his position is drastically different than Bond's, you you do feel like he is an equal to him in many ways. He has like a periscope installed in the Russian embassy. It's like, yeah. which I like to pretend that he installed that, and the people just somehow know it's there. They just let it happen. I'm just imagining a comical periscope just. Yeah, I've always I've always wondered what the periscope actually looks like yeah. in the room of the Russian concert. Like I'm sure it's you know they want you to think that's like it's well hidden in some kind of like you know decor or something. But I still like the idea of just this long metal pole yeah. just sticking out of the floor, and they just don't care. In, in the film, it looks like the periscope's looking through like a double or a triple wide mouse hole or something, and yeah. just like pay no attention to the mice. They are very shiny. So in regards to the budget, like I, I was like trying to pinpoint all the little things that felt like advancements from the first one. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we get to a scene where we, it's, it's one shot of like, we have people doing karate. We have one people with a flamethrower. We have people shooting guns. We have people doing archery. And it's like, yeah. I think I know where all the budget went. It's this one <laughs> shot. It's this mu- massive multinational criminal organization, but they had to do all their training in one yard. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I do feel, I do feel like there's certain parts of the film where the producers are flexing a bit. Yeah. Just being like, Hey, look what we can afford exactly. to do now. You want to know how spy this is? We're this Very spy. spy. <laughs> like, there's some story back here. Dear but we're mom not and dad, it. summer camp is not as fun as you said it would be. <laughs> as he's on fire from a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> no, they definitely, you know, they definitely uh, bumped up the gadgets in this one. You know, we're not still, we're not yet at the point in the series where it goes full on gadget. And this, and you know, especially I mean, this is the movie that uh, introduces the character of Q, who you're going to be seeing a, a lot of as as it goes down. They didn't call him Q though. They 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 they, they, they said just Quartermaster. Yeah, they just call yeah. In this one, they just call him Quartermaster. Oh, when uh, when they introduced the uh, the rifle that fits like. like collapses and fits mm-hmm. like not so much folding but like you take it apart and it all fits in the stock which is a very very cool gadget i was kind of afraid like oh they're gonna use this for an assassination and they'll never use it but i was pretty pleased to see that he uses it to take out the helicopter which is pretty pretty cool yeah he uses it he uses it to shoot to shoot the assassin krilenko and then he, he uses it against the the helicopter well the uh the other guy uses it off of his shoulder with a broken yeah. arm mm-hmm. yeah while he also was secretly sick with cancer does anyone did anyone get fury road vibes from that Oh, because there's a scene where Max doesn't feel confident that he can hit the target from far away, so Furiosa put props the rifle on his shoulder and shoots it. Did she have a broken arm in that too? She had one arm. 
It's about the same. I need to see that movie again. It's yes, you long. do. You are correct. Only real... I guess the, word, the only word I can think of is complaints about the... Uh, Older movies in general is 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 the very loud sound effects sometimes uh, hurt my ears a little bit over over these speakers. Although the loudest thing in the film tended to be whistles of all things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's nothing that I've never noticed before watching these movies in you know just a home theater setting, but not actually you know watching these on a big screen in a proper theater with you know larger than live sound equipment those uh by speakers yeah no like there, there are a couple of whistles like oh huh those are very noticeable em i'm being assaulted by whistles they won't stop <laughs> it's like so, i'm at the end of the sound of music and then i think an, another i mean i don't know how much the budget was designed for it but it's like there's a gratuitous amount of train scenes in this film trains were from the very beginning um, we're going to pay, play a big part in this movie because it played a big part in the book okay. because um, the original book from Russia with Love was inspired by a real-life headline that happened in the Cold War where uh, a Russian spy actually killed a... It was an American spy. By, it might have been British. I'd have to double check that. But uh, a spy was killed by getting by uh, a Russian spy just shoving him out of a moving train, and that made the news with the headline. The headline of the article was "From Russia with Love," and that headline inspired Ian Fleming to write the book. This might just be my memory speaking, but I'm pretty sure I, or I could be thinking of Archer. But I, 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 I can almost swear that I remember Bamboo. the. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can I can almost swear there's like a scene on like top of a train where Bond has to fight some guys or something like that. There are train rooftop fight scenes, not in this one, but they 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 do exist. Although I think I know why they went over budget. Why they, they go over budget? Cause... They put Daniel Craig in the film. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought, oh. I thought that Russian guy or exactly. the, the Spectre guy looked a lot <laughs> like him. It. I see. That's it. like, huh? You're yeah. about a uh, hmm, forty yeah. years early. I see. Time travel is a very pricey endeavor, Cruz. <laughs> yeah. The leader of Spectre, number one, with his uh, beautiful white cat. Uh, the hands of Spectre, number one. You know, if he's on in a credit scene, he's uh, he's credited as question mark. His his hands were played by uh, Anthony Dawson, who played Professor Dent in Doctor No. Do they specifically want his hands, or could it have just been anyone's at the time? It could have been anyone's. I don't know the specifics on how he got. Casted to be the hands, it might have just been he was around and available. So he can use my hands when on one condition, my cat gets to be in there with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like Tatiana. I think um, I think she stands, still stands as one of the better Bond girls in the franchise. It's certainly better than Honey Ryder because she's actually important to the plot. But you know what I like about her is that she, you know, once she's in, she's for the most part pretty proactive in the plot. Uh, she's never a damsel in distress, or at least to the point where you know she's just the the thing that Bond needs to save. You know, whenever she is put in danger, there is actual narrative reason why she's in danger. It makes sense why she's in danger. In terms of you know narrative importance, I think she is a prime example of what a Bond girl. 
should be. And I mean, like, the only time she's really helpless is when she's drugged, which is pretty believable. I, I like to pretend that the character wanted to be passed out. That way she didn't have to deal with any of that crap. <laughs> Bo Bond and Grant are just, you know, fighting through the through the car, destroying destroying everything, making this noise. She's like, do you mind? Shouldn't anyone have heard all of that banging in that cart? Every single passenger on that train is going, nope. Don't nope. <laughs> well, my door is locked. <laughs> Imagine the train's night porter, just like, you know, is just walking by doing the rounds. He hears all this banging, just like, yeah, I don't get paid enough. <laughs> yeah, it was the equivalent of uh, when I worked at Cinemark and I hear on the radio, yeah, we have an accident in the men's bathroom. Can someone take care of that? And that's when I just clicked off my radio and disappeared. Oh, perfect time for a lunch break. <laughs> perfect time to just hide in the booth and never be seen again. Good time to be a bad employee. <laughs> like, I do think that Tatiana is a lot more interesting and um, does a hell of a lot more than Honeycrisp did. So, um, yes. But, yes. but at the same time, it's like she seems really Spacey throughout the film. It makes it slightly hard to buy that she's supposedly this, you know, high-end uh, cryptographer who's allowed near uh, government secrets. They don't go too heavy-handed on that, but they do, you know, say that, uh, like, oh, she's a cryptographer. She she deal she works the decoding machine. She's the only woman who is allowed inside the uh, Russian consulate meeting. This is a fact that even I tend to forget until each time I actually watch the movie, she has a rank. Colonel Kleb calls her corporal. She does strike me as the kind of person who is like, she, she's aware of her, she's aware of how skilled she is, but she's also aware of like, she's in a time where women are typically not allotted a lot of like conversational freedom. Yeah, you can be, you can be the best in your field, but it still won't get you anywhere. So she takes what she can, and like, especially when Bond's like getting personal with her, so she, mm -hmm. she, she knows she can, she can push, push the boundaries a little bit there. Which creates an interesting contrast between this like strict, by the books, old woman who's probably been in that business for a number of years versus Tatiana, who's like this fresh, lively young woman. Mm -hmm. And it's like, is that the fate that she faces if she stays in this business or? You know, Colonel Kleb definitely is uh, a character who has laid a groundwork for femme fatales. She has definitely become sort of a you know sub archetype. Uh, you see, you know, any high strong uh, communist or Nazi iron strong woman you see in movies with that you know around the ear bob haircut. You know that that came from Kleb. This movie does sit as one of my favorites in the franchise. I do think there are a few things that uh, that drags it down. Uh, the chief thing I have with it is mostly what occurs at the beginning, uh, how long it actually takes to get to Bond. You know, before we even actually see Bond at all, we've had the villains come out, discuss their plan, exactly how their plan is going to work out. So before we even get to Bond, we know everything that the villains are doing. And I think, I think putting so much on the table for the audience at the beginning Lou makes the movie lose some of that dramatic irony based tension that uh, made Dr. No so strong. Well, I think part of it is that, you know, this is like just the beginning. This is like smack in the middle of the beginning of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it um, at the beginning is kind of trying to kind of piggyback off of the current tension already existing because that was very much real. And I suppose to an American audience back then that 
the the Russians would almost be like kind of a wild card. Like you kind of know what they're going to do, but you're not sure if they're how they're going to react to everything. Uh, so, you know, something that, that you know watching this movie is very easily uh, uh, brushed over because you are rooting for uh, the hero. Uh, let's be real here. Bond totally bombed a, a, a consulate. Subtle yet effective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Subtle, sure. Ken Adams, uh, the set designer that we praised last episode and will praise going forward, uh, was not available for From Russia with Love, so he was not the set designer on this film. I believe it was a man named Sid Kane who was the set designer for this film, and uh, I, b- I believe it shows. I think some of the sets in From Russia with Love aren't as imaginative as the crap that Ken Adams pulls out. Yeah, because this one feels very much like on location, visiting different locales and different yeah, areas very, of this country. You know, they, uh, you know, whenever they could get away with uh, with pulling off a cool overhead shot of Istanbul and uh, and and the mosques, you know, they, they 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 took every opportunity they could with that. They really loved showing off the the shots of the mosques. It's an evolution from Doctor No, but it hasn't reached that peak of what you normally expect with James Bond. Um, it does feel a lot more uh, like a spy thriller, and it's kind of nice to see like like the further um, taking its first steps into what it eventually becomes. Like I, I think one of the, the benefits of it being more of a spy thriller is that when there are like action scenes, like they they, they do feel like that extra sense of tenseness, like when they're like when they're shooting the guy who's trying to escape out of the the hatch on the the woman's mm-hmm. mouth. Yeah. Like there's only like four, there's only five people involved in that scene, but it feels very important and uh, like very like subterfuge. Like mm-hmm. they're doing yeah. they're doing something very discreetly and mm-hmm. very important. My favorite action scene is uh, the the shootout at the gypsy camp. That was mm-hmm. a good one. That was yeah. pretty crazy, especially since it like it kind of foreshadows uh, like kind of the intent of uh, I forgot the the guy from Spectre, but he's mm-hmm. basically making Daniel sure Craig. Bond. Yeah, basically, <laughs> but he's basically making sure Bond doesn't get killed. And so, like, it's it's pretty interesting just seeing him just kind of waiting there patiently. I kind of like how he has this superiority to him, where he's like, "I've been your guardian angel this whole time, Bond." I find it funny with uh, with Red Grant. Uh, you know, up until the conference, up until the train, he is silent. You yeah, know, he's, he he doesn't have a single line of dialogue, and he's just this big, hulking, muscular man, always watching from the shadows. And then when Bond actually starts talking to him, you know, granted he is putting on a bit of a bit of a character, but he talks with this, you know, v- very upper nasally, posh, uh, uh, posh, uh, talking yeah. to that old man. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I was expecting Bond to be like, "Are you really from England, sir?" And he's like, uh-huh. "Duh." I, I mean. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was yeah. expecting like an inglorious bastard scene of like ordering three drinks and then being exposed somehow. Red wine with fish. <laughs> that's how I knew you had poor taste in that's the, fish. That's how I knew you had to be an enemy because you <laughs> ordered a different wine with your fish. <laughs> Although I think my favorite death might be the one that I at first didn't think was a death, which is why it took me off guard, is when uh, number... 13, 14, who is he? <laughs> five. Five. Uh, when number five gets uh, stabbed in the ankle, uh, and I'm like, ouch. Oh, that so, was mildly inconvenient. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh he's going down. <laughs> oh, wait, it, he's dead. Okay. <laughs> he's going down. It must have been his Achilles heel. And then he's like, uh, 15 <laughs> seconds, we must find a faster acting poison. <laughs> faster and I was like, oh, I get it. Thanks, Mr. Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Thanks, Dr. Claw. You know, because it's all subterfuge and espionage, one thing that this movie doesn't have is, uh, you know, a great rapport and interaction between Bond and the villains. Bond doesn't interact with the villains at all until the very end with uh, with Colonel Kleb. He never even meets Kronstein. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously Blofeld, they're, they're building up. But, you know, on the inverse of that, I think something that uh, that allows time for is Bond to build up that rapport mostly with Carabay. And I think it's also pretty <clears throat> smart to, like, we need something to keep the audience coming back. So let's establish this overarching, you know, villainous corporation to just keep it constantly um, conspiring against him. Mm-hmm. Spectre? Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... Uh, Does he ever run into like a villain who's like, you must be with Spectre? And he's like, yes, I totally know what that is. <laughs> I wish that was the case. Um, <laughs> that would have been amazing. If you're really with Spectre, then what is their logo? Giraffe? <laughs> Good <laughs> enough. It's, it's like ghosts, right? They're called Spectre. Oh, is it supposed to be a ghost? No, it's an octopus. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an octopus. It's a, the idea is, it, is it like, that they have tentacles yeah. reaching out into everything. I, I, I just imagine a spy just like, okay, hold on. Just gets a piece of paper, starts drawing it. It's like, mm, okay, forgive me. It's not very well done. I'm not an artist. And just pulls it up. It's like, <laughs> it's just, it almost looks like a five-year-old drew it. <laughs> Ink blot test. He's like, it looks something like that, Sha. Wait a second. You didn't even draw it with crayon. How does it look like that? <laughs> oh, wait, a chop shy down. Okay, now I see. <laughs> Teddy bear picnic. That's nice. <laughs> I, I just really like seeing Club get, get get what's coming, mainly because it's the Bond girl that that, that mm. does her in. Probably my favorite death was when Bond uh, kind of huddles behind the rock, puts his rifle together, and then he manages to get a shot off on the guy's arm, uh, like right as he's about to throw the grenade. It's just like my reaction would have been to use my other working arm to just <laughs> slap that shit right out of the window. Just feel like not dying this way today. <laughs> But yeah, like a great use of like early helicopters. It's just like it's always cool to see like early iterations of like kind of almost gadgety seeming vehicles for the time being used like this. There is an episode of Doctor Who in the 70s that full on steals the clip of that helicopter exploding. There's an episode where the, where the third doctor uh, is going. I, I, I had to go back and remember what story it was i don't remember top of my head jelly babies or something it was it was third no that was fourth it was the third stupid (laughs) (laughs) and he's he's fighting these enemies in the helicopter and the the helicopter ultimately explodes and they just straight up rip the exploding helicopter from from rush with love and just slap it right in because i remember watching the episode for the first time and i see it and i'm like wait a minute Because there are moments where Godzilla will reuse footage either from itself or from some other film. Oh, we learned so that I already. Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh. Yeah. So I like pinpointing things where it's like, hey. I recognize that. Clip. Yeah, it's I like know exactly where that's from. It's like people who are like standard viewers will, won't catch it, but if you're paying attention, they'll be like, wait a mm-hmm. minute. As far as the Bond films go, I would definitely say that this one is the slowest pace. I wouldn't say that. That is a fault of it, as opposed to just a manner of the beast that it is being a spy thriller. I myself have always been a huge fan of spy-based espionage during the Cold War, mostly because of Bond, uh, because I I just personally just dig that kind of stuff uh, from Russia with Love being a full-on spy thriller. Uh, Holds a special place in my heart. I like the use of the gadgets in this one, like how the the suitcase, like it has an exploding gas canister. It has it has fifty like 
dollars and some currency just slipped into the the little straps that hold the two sides together. Fifty dollars worth of seashells. Fifty. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I like I like the I like the quip at the beginning where like they're obviously being followed, and the guys just like, well, that's how things are around here. They follow us, and we follow them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I really I really like that. I really like that scene. It kind of sets the the mood of what it's of what the Cold War is like in Istanbul, where. Yeah, they don't even try to hide it. They're just fighting the Cold War out in the open. All right, yeah. same same time next week, guys. Yeah, right. yeah. It kind of reminds me of like the old like Looney Tunes gag of like you know the sheepdogs and the wolves. You know when it once it gets the head of their shift, they they go to the clock out like <laughs> like all right, bye Frank, bye Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From Russia with love, I fly to you. Much wiser since my goodbye to you. I've traveled the world to learn I must return from Russia with love. Before we go any further, there is something that I, I need to bring up. During the You're podcast, pregnant. <laughs> fuck, well, we knew that. <laughs> During the last episode, Cruz and I were talking about Steve Buscemi from 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 Spy Kids. We're done with this, Willie. No, it's over. You said it's... and you left in the episode. Tune in next week. God damn! <laughs> <laughs> it's been more than a week. The actor I was thinking of was Jeff Goldblum, mm-hmm. not Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. That had to be brought up. Because you can clearly see the resemblance between the two of them. I'm really looking forward to to talking about Godzilla, mainly because I look forward to talking about how much we were riffing on it. Uh, yeah, Cruz, just like just for reference, like during this segment, just put up in the video the picture of Godzilla. The first close-up of Godzilla just set me absolutely gotta... fucking nuts almost on the floor. Redo the logo to to incorporate uh, oh. this. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, Chaz, but I need the eyebrows to be bigger, dumber. <laughs> T- teeth uh, needs to protrude out more. I-, I wish I could do uh, the impersonation of the of the guy from uh, Law and Order who has the huge eyebrows. They're almost like an inch tall. <laughs> Would you guys like some cheese? It's I know Jacob wouldn't, but. Uh, well, Chaz, as a semi-professional voice actor, you don't eat anything or drink anything that has dairy in it because it messes with your saliva. That's a willy problem. <laughs> <laughs> could, could, do you mind getting a, a box? Mm. I'll get it if you want. You, you got a disabled man get the box. <laughs> well, I said I would get it, and you got to stretch out your disabled foot, so. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Cockroach. How are you? Don't say that. <laughs> are you serious? Is it dead? It, it looks dead. But I don't know how for how long. It's not like super decayed or anything. I did. What? No, it's back. Yeah. Continue our kaiju journey with what I consider to be the worst film in the Godzilla film series, Godzilla Raids Again from 1955. After seeing the success of the original Godzilla, both in Japan and overseas, 
Toho producer Iwao Mori told producer and special effects master Eiji Tsuburaya to start working on a sequel immediately, and only five months later, after the first film was released, the world received Chapter 2 in Godzilla's Saga. It was very much the Matrix revolutions of its time. At the end of Gojira, Dr. Yamani remarks on his fears that Godzilla was not the last of its species. Raids again proves Yamani correct, as a new Godzilla just so happens to appear, along with another massive prehistoric monster known as Angiris, or Angilus, depending on who you ask. It was directed by prolific B-movie director Motoyoshi Oda, who took the reins from Ashiro Honda, who chose to focus on more drama films at the time. Original writer Takeo Murata returned to write the second film, which sort of explains why, once again, the story follows Godzilla wrecking havoc on Japan, and how it affects the lives of three young people, one of whom dies at the end of the film while stopping Godzilla. Originator of the Godzilla theme Akira Ifakube did not return for the sequel, and was replaced by composer Masuro Sato, who despite delivering an underwhelming score, went on to score many of Akira Kurosawa's films and several more Godzilla films. And, as blasphemous as it sounds, I think I prefer Masuro Sato over Akira Ifakube, and I'll explain why later on. Despite achieving financial success at the Japanese and American box office, the film was regarded as an underwhelming follow-up to the original that took the world by storm. The notable flaws within the sequel are that the mystery and originality of the first Godzilla is missing, nor are there any ethical dilemmas to consider. The intersection between the characters' lives and the monster action is coincidental, and hardly drives the story forward leaving a film that cowers in the shadow of its far superior original, but paved the way for many kaiju battles to come. So who wants to start on this sequel that ended up being exactly what I told you it was going to be? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> we made the best of it. That was unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> it was fortunate that we all saw it together because of how much fun we had, but it was most unfortunate. Oh, boy. I will admit that with this being the third time I've watched the film, it was the most fun I've had watching the film because Chaz, Jake, and Willie pretty much MST3K the entire thing. And I was completely fine with it. <laughs> it was a total rip track. I tried. I tried yeah. to take the movie seriously. I, you know, it just it didn't let me. And it, after a while, like, I have, I had to crack jokes at it. Like, I, I was giving it the benefit of the doubt until the shot... <laughs> that first close-up of Godzilla's face. Yeah, the, how, the how shot far that, in was that? The shot that turned Chaz into a cackling hyena for about yeah, five minutes. Roughly. Like, if I had kept laughing like that any longer, I would have been genuinely put in medical distress. <laughs> at that point, <laughs> at that point, all bets were off. This thing's getting ragged. Like, yeah. But his teeth are, like, sticking out at a 45-degree angle on the top row. And it, it almost—he almost looks like a badly drawn cartoon character. He doesn't have dental insurance. It's not his fault. <laughs> well, neither do I. And what's his excuse? Godzilla needs to brush his teeth and get some goddamn Invisalign. Godzilla needs to unionize. <laughs> <laughs> as, as far as all of the many problems that this thing had, um, the close-ups 
So many close-ups, all of them. And so many double-sped, two-times-speed close-ups of fighting. It was odd. Like, there's one shot that was repeatedly shown. What was the other dinosaur called? Angiris. Angiris. Doing, like, a head whip. uh, And a a, a circular head whip. I whip my head back and forth. I whip my head. Exactly. We're all just doing it now. (laughs) Yeah. Just cutting Dave Chappelle going, what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The story behind... um, the increases in speed for the fighting is that they were shooting the three cameras, two of which were filming at the correct speed for the fight sequences. The third camera, whoever was running it at the time, did not set it correctly. Now, normally, special effects genius Eiji Tsuburaya would have looked at that and been like, no, that's completely unacceptable. It's not how it's supposed to look. But apparently, he did look at the footage and go, yeah, that's fine. We're just going to work with it. And one can only assume that it's because, well, we just, just just destroyed this entire set of models. We can't do it again, so just roll with it, guys. That makes it even worse for me, because I, was, I yeah. was at least thinking that, okay, okay, maybe it was an artistic choice that just Same. didn't pan out. No, you were just lazy socks of shit. No, they're not lazy. <laughs> they, they did the best with what they ended up yeah, saying. Yeah, no. Okay, one cameraman <laughs> fucked up. And we all paid for it. I knew that, that we definitely weren't uh, in for a masterpiece here when Godzilla is just there three minutes in. You know, the, the first film, you know, the build-up. Oh, my God, that build-up. But then you get to here, they they like, oh, flying, flying. Oh, I, I, had to, I had to make an emergency landing on this island. Godzilla. Yep. <laughs> they just, like, they look through a crack, and there's Godzilla. Oh, there's another monster, too. Godzilla having a colossal like, fucking titan fight with there the There was the zero build-up. He's just... There. Yeah. That was the part that I All I of a sudden, a wild Godzilla appeared. Yeah, a wild <laughs> Suit work wasn't good. The model work wasn't good. The suit acting was good, though. Well, in terms of, like, obviously the first suit was damaged, so they couldn't reuse the, the original one. Right. They designed this one so that uh, Haru Nakajima could actually fight another monster in it, so they had to thin it out make it more accessible uh, unfortunately that didn't excuse the face design and just the overall lack of believability for the suit the choreo the choreography for the monster fight you know an attempt was made i recognize that yeah that's like, it there were some cool moments in 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 some of them yeah. there were some really good ones and but the majority of it just was off, and then and then like double sped up at times, and then. But Angiris dies of a large and painful hickey. <laughs> yes, yes. And meanwhile, meanwhile, Godzilla's mouth is like sliding along his neck, like his teeth broke off into it, into the into it, and it's just like. Angiris, I mean... though, uh, uh, technically is the first kaiju that Godzilla ever fights, so it's cool to have yeah. that yeah. make its debut. He does eventually come back uh, in the rest of the series and does keep his uh, roar as well. I really like the roar for for Angiris. I like the fact that you do because like it's it's a, it's really pathetic. I think part of what makes that roar seem kind of pathetic is the suit modeling because a lot of times that roar was coupled with that close up shot of. And Gary's doing that weird fa- head twirl thing. So, like, it comes across as, like, oh, my God, did you seriously jest? The fire effects and the explosions, the pyrotechnics, those are actually pretty good. Yeah. Those were good. And then the effect of uh, the 
the water flooding into like uh, the subway area. That was that was cool. That was good. Like there was like a small weak point where you could kind of see where they kind of like had trouble blending it in. But overall, well, like it, the first movie had that too, and it, I, I say that's within that line of forgivability. Well, true Godzilla fans say you don't see the strings. <laughs> Did you guys like how the movie just made a left turn at the traffic lights and became about a, a crime story? That was actually uh, fairly interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then I the monsters came more. back. Um, yeah, That's the entire movie in a nutshell. Uh, it was great, then the monster showed up. So the reason behind that was that uh, the writer wanted to express what would Osaka look like if people started um, looting and just kind of like running through the streets and doing whatever they wanted. Unfortunately, because of time and budgetary reasons, it had to be turned into just this set of criminals who just so happens to blow up this, you know. Mm -hmm. To the film's credit, I really do like how they black out the entire city. Yeah. All you see are the flares in the sky, and everything is just quiet. Because it reminds me of, like, what would Japan do during the air raids, but shut all the power down and just wait. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly we are uh, glancing over what is uh, undisputably the best part of the movie, where uh, we just watched the first one again. The film is already as short as it is, and yet they have to pad out the runtime by showing us a better movie. It just, and it just went on. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 I want to say that was five minutes, and then there was five minutes, or maybe even ten minutes of the end of the movie. Of, of shooting the, a mountain. Of just shooting a mountain. <laughs> While Godzilla just stands still and lets it happen. Which I still think is, like, for effects-wise, I think it's pretty impressive. Unfortunately, it just keeps going on and on. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. the shot is precluded with... Just an overhead shot of Godzilla in like a fake valley, and he's standing perfectly still. Yeah, he's standing there menacingly. <laughs> yep. The director's vision is based on movement. If I don't move, he won't <laughs> see me. <laughs> Lots of weird decision making by Godzilla here, like because later on, like the Japanese army sends up some guys with the uh, fuel ba- fuel barrels to, mm-hmm. uh, I-, I guess, distract Godzilla, prevent him from leaving. And so, but hypothetically, Godzilla's is kind of like maybe waist deep in ice, and he's just looking at guys like <laughs> tiny, like ant-like people just rolling out drums in front of him. It's just like, oh, well, ain't that a thing? <laughs> That's neat. I like I like your response to that, Chaz, which is he's being buried in ice to his neck up, and he's like, guys, I'm not gonna do too well when the tide comes in. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to uh, Subaraya's credit, that was actual ice that they were dumping all over yeah, Nakajima. Well, I mean, no, I believe it. It looks like it came straight out of his ice cube tray in his freezer. Yeah. No, they had an ice machine. It was actual <laughs> chunks of ice. It was perfect, freezing. Per- perfect cubes of them, yeah. You know, just, 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 like, uh, just like the natural ice on those good old Japanese mountains. The part that really threw me off at the end was the end. Yeah, you you really did not like uh, the 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 lack of denouement. The the first Godzilla had had a bit of of de-escalation with with them calling out for for Sarazawa, yeah. giving him the salute. A lack of a denouement um, was that was considered rather normal for movies and if it, not just in Japanese cinema, but American cinemas, uh, cinemas too. It was it was fairly common to where okay, that's the story, climax has happened, end. I've I've never have never had an ending throw me off like that before. Like like I've seen the all the old Bond movies twice. Yeah, but like, I said fifties. Oh, you said fifties. I heard sixties. I heard um, yeah, it, it was pretty. It was, it was a pretty common practice to uh, not let the end linger all that much. To me, it was just. It was. I felt very abrupt. I feel like there, there could have been another minute or two of of I 
of something. Like, no, because they already did that in the beginning, in the, in the middle of the movie, where, um, you know, Osaka got destroyed. So, uh, uh, what are we going to respond with? Oh, we're just going to crack jokes about finding brides. That was the that was the other thing that threw me off, like, like immediately. It's like, why are they joking all of a sudden? Like, 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 sure, making the best out of a bad situation, trying to find some humor, but they're th- th- that that's not this. Yeah. <laughs> well, really, if you want a, a, an ending that's kind of more classical in that design, you could watch. The American version of this film, which is just a whole nother can of worms to talk about, um, <laughs> because naturally they do have this. Um, even though it's an American, uh, an Asian American actor doing the dub, it does have this stereotypical sound of, and then we defeated Godzilla, and then we got married and lived happily ever after, and peace and and whatever was found throughout the nation, and it's very much a more conclusive ending. It just doesn't make it better. That that, that (laughs) wouldn't make it better for me. Like, I'd want to see some kind of future shots. I'd want to see it more than anything. Just a little bit of of anything. Well, to be fair, and to, I guess, prepare you for the future movies, a lot of the Godzilla movies end like that, but not as bad as Godzilla Raids again, I should say. I'm looking forward to to, to to seeing how the wind downs differ, and 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 if a good movie m- makes the ending that much more okay, if it just kind of ends. We'll make a new segment where Willie measures the uh, <laughs> the, the impact of the ending. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I, they I are talk about they the are very like much similar. So I'll be interested to see how you feel by the end of them. Did it hit the brakes at the right time? Maybe, yeah. maybe the biggest lobster opportunity was uh, that at the end they could have. Uh, Unveiled the introduction for the new musical Godzilla on Ice. Freaking freezing in here, <laughs> Mr. Picklesworth. <laughs> I also like your joke, Chaz, about um, instead of the uh, the radio operator being sad about uh, her potential boyfriend's death, she's sad over the concept of, oh, they're putting Godzilla on ice and they're going to take his kidneys. They stole my fucking kidneys. <laughs> Did you say the other the other version or a version had had a had a thing where like Godzilla like stuck his his claw out of the ice or something? Yeah, I think uh, the American version, which um, is known as Gigantus, the fire monster in America. Oh, that is much worse. <laughs> <laughs> which to to preface it with, so Warner Brothers, whose producers were licensing it for America, um, named it Gigantus, the fire monster. Originally, they thought it was because they didn't have the rights to the name Godzilla which didn't make sense because the person who distributed it in America didn't own the rights to the name either. So it wasn't a rights issue. The reason why they named it Gigantus the Fire Monster is, and I quote, we called it Gigantus because we didn't want it to be confused with Godzilla. What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, because they felt like we want this to be completely separate and make something brand new, but even people during the time who made Godzilla box office success in America were like that that's Godzilla what do you what, we, yeah. we know what that there were there were news articles that were like why are they calling this something different so to add to that story and to give context to the ending of the claw coming out not only was it renamed to something different but originally Godzilla raids again was going to be re-edited into a movie called The Volcano Monsters so they were going to film, like, an entirely brand new American movie, but Power Rangers it mm, and use the Japanese right, footage. Right. And at the end of that film, I think Godzilla was supposed to have his claw come out of the ice as, like, a stinger. So 
And if he wanted things to be worse, in the American version of Godzilla Rates Again, Godzilla's roar isn't Godzilla's roar, and Gears' roar is the roar for both of them. So anytime you watch that and you see Anguirus' roar come out of Godzilla's mouth, I'm like, what are you doing? Even talking from, like, like a film standpoint, you need a differentiation between the two. That's, just like, that's like the most basic thing. Like, even if you were writing a comic book, you wouldn't draw the sound clap bubble, like... You wouldn't give them the each same effect. A, yeah, each one would have a different onomatopoeia. And to yeah. be fair, the Godzilla comics do have different onomatopoeia for all the monsters. <laughs> so another major element that's unfortunately missing from this is Akira Ifukube's classic and original score for Godzilla. And instead we have uh, Masaru Sato's score, which feels very conventional and kind of unmemorable. To the point where uh, when he was asked for his opinion on his work on this film, he said, It's like listening to a kid trying to learn. Masuro Sato said that about his own work. Ow. Yeah. <laughs> so would you believe that if I told you that the same composer for this film made the opening theme for our podcast? No. Like our bombastic James Bond sounding theme mm-hmm. comes from one of his future works. So when it comes to Masuro Sato, as much as I think he doesn't do a good job in this, and I feel like Akira Ifukube is better at doing something more iconic and theatrical, I prefer Sato's because his scores are like Godzilla scores you can groove to. They're very big band, energetic, and mm-hmm. kind of fit that James Bond style as well. So as the series continues, you'll see a difference between Ifakube and Sato's scores. And you'll know it's Sato when you start bobbing your head and start yeah. getting into the groove of things. <laughs> so for the Americanized version of um, the Volcano Monsters, the climactic battle are supposed to be taking place in San Francisco. So how do you think they explained the use of Osaka Castle and the other shots of Japan in this American movie? Uh, obviously, it takes place in the same universe as uh, the localized Ace Attorney games. Oh, God, is it because it's in Chinatown? You are correct. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That is glorious. Which brings us to alternate titles for this film and additionally the first film, because I found out that there's a lot more alternate titles for the original Godzilla that I completely forgot to mention in the last episode, so (laughs) I'm going to go over those now. It turns out that the Americanized Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters, was in fact then imported to Japan in 1957 (laughs) and advertised as Monster King Godzilla. So it was very much the Street Fighter, the movie, the game of the time. (laughs) So to clarify for the original film, in Sweden, it was Godzilla, Monster of the Sea. In Spain, it was Japan, Under the Terror of the Monster. In Portugal, the Monster of the Pacific Ocean. In Greece, Godzilla, Monster of the Century. And in Brazil, Godzilla, the Sea Monster, not to be confused with Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. And my personal favorite from Germany... Godzilla, the most sensational film of the present. (laughs) So moving on to Godzilla Raids again, in Japan it was known as Gojira no Gyakushu, translated as Revenge of Godzilla, as well as Godzilla's Counterattack. In America, Godzilla Raids again, or as we all know by now, Gigantus the Fire Monster. Not to be confused with Godzilla. In Spain, it was known as King of the Monsters. In France, The Return of Godzilla, not to be confused with The Return of Godzilla from 1984, also known as Godzilla 1985. In Germany, Godzilla Returns, and my personal favorite from Brazil, Godzilla Attacks Again. 
So we have a title score of eight. As of right now, the original Godzilla still holds the record for nine film titles. Are there any more Godzilla movies that, that we could potentially uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000? Yes. Yay! There aren't too many that are as bad as this one, but there are some that are just kind of like subpar and that I wouldn't mind, you know, like having a riff or two because they do warrant themselves to that for the most part. Well, we have... Uh... Uh, anything l- l- like the hangers during during pandemic? <laughs> um, it depends. Once we get to the ones made in the seventies, right? Yeah, sixties or seventies. Yeah. yeah, I'll let you guys know. Okay. I'll tell you guys to bring the butter for the giant lobstery fights. All right. Bring some escargot for the, the biolant for the uh. Damn it! What's the environmental one for biolantis? No, uh, biolante is the one that comes from a rose. Can I get a? Can I get a uh, venti biolante, please? How does that work? I don't know. It sounds vaguely like a Starbucks order, I guess. A buy a latte? Yeah, because it sounds like uh, latte. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a vente buy a latte? Do you not know what that is? They would in Seattle. <laughs> that was too well done. That was. If you don't know what buy a latte is, then why are you even working here? Well, he's had years of practicing on my mom, so. <laughs> And we're back to the Bond vs. Godzilla podcast. How's everyone doing tonight? You doing okay? Not regretting every decision you've ever made. That's nice. In closing, I will say that despite Godzilla Raids Again's, you know, disappointing outset, it did encourage Toho to just keep funding their special effects department and continuing the trend of just creating the kaiju genre. So as much as we ended up with this film, Shiro Honda eventually came back in 1956 with Rodan, which is absolutely amazing. And then he made Mothra and just more and more came after it. So thankfully it was the catalyst in a way to keep making these movies and keep funding them so jake would you recommend from russia with love or godzilla raids again to a first time viewer from russia with love yes and... <laughs> <laughs> godzilla raids again absolutely not the best thing you can say is no if unless you're you know you have a good uh group of friends who like to get together and just riff at bad movies then it's a hoot that's what i was gonna say i was i was i was gonna say don't watch it alone watch it with friends and get ready to riff don't don't make the the mistake Cruz made the first two times. Watch it. Well, watch it with goofy people you like. That was research. Russia with love certainly. It's a it's a good movie, and it's you know it's 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 another one of those old movies where it does require a little bit of a tolerance towards slower pacing. But if if you're paying enough attention, you're getting you're getting the beats, and it, that should be enough to keep at least most people going. Godzilla Strikes Again again or. Oh, there's another one. Godzilla, Godzilla's current counterattack. <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely have a good sense of humor with you or some good sense of humor friends. Uh, I would definitely recommend From Usher With Love to first-time viewers. Um, I wouldn't say you should skip over Dr. No, but if you were to just jump in into From Usher With Love, it's almost as if you know you won't really miss a whole lot if you don't see that film. 
but I think you will miss out on just seeing Bond growing into his own character in that film. And this one kind of just takes off with that idea and kind of does its own thing. But I still think it's a good starting point if you were to choose to do so. Godzilla Raids again. I spent my whole life pretty much not knowing it even existed. I thought King Kong vs. Godzilla went straight off of the first one, and it very much remained a hard-to-find film, which is why it was kind of disappointing when I finally checked it off my list as one of the last Godzilla movies I ever watched and was pretty underwhelmed and disappointed by it. So, no, I would absolutely not recommend it to first-time viewers. Um, Go watch the first one or go into King Kong vs. Godzilla. All right, next time on James Bond, it's the film often touted as the best Bond film of all time and the one responsible for creating the formula that all future installments would follow. James Bond will return in Goldfinger. And in the same vein, we're going to be watching King Kong vs. Godzilla, which, like Goldfinger, is regarded as one of the best Godzilla films in the franchise and essentially created the formula for Kaiju vs. Kaiju films. In addition, we'll also be checking out the new Godzilla vs. Kong, which we'll be double billing with it. So we'll have thoughts on the original and thoughts on how they translated it 50 years later. Thank you all for listening to Bond vs. Godzilla. We'll see you next time with a martini in one hand and a rubber suit in the other. Oh, this is where you say stay tuned and stay watching. Remember to stay tuned and keep watching. I fucked it up again tonight. <laughs> I did, did I do the exact same yeah. thing last? What, wouldn't it be stay listening because? Oh yeah, wait. Are they? They're are they watching the? Well, the, well tuned is on. listening. Watching is watching movies. Yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I don't watch comic books or read movies. Okay, so stay tuned. Keep watching. Stay watching. Stay, stay watching. Stay, stay, stay tuned and stay watching. Stay watching.